And welcome to Time Streams. I am your host, Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And today we are going to talk about three episodes that are sometimes referred to as 100,000 BC, The Tribe of Gum, or just as what I call it, parts two, three, and four of An Unearthly Child. <laughs> yeah, fandom is weird in this uh, era of Doctor Who because they didn't have titles originally for the whole storylines mm -hmm. and so people have these like different names that they pop out sometimes and so apparently the original title for this when it wasn't going to be the first story was called the tribe of gum you know they're never called gum you know in in the actual story but that was the original title okay and and then uh, for a while, apparently, it was called 100,000 BC. And so people who think that, like, this should be, like, separate from the very first one, call that an unearthly child and call, you know, the other three, you know, one of those other two names. But most people, because it was one, you know, it was recorded as one thing. It has one director over all four episodes. You know, it's considered one serial of the series. Mm -hmm. You know, we just say the whole thing is an unearthly child and, you know. That's how we. <laughs> that's that's what all the DVDs and like the novelization and everything. That's the title they have. But okay. Anyway, for those who you know want too much information about the background of things, um, but uh, how are you doing, Juliet? Doing okay. I'm getting over the flu, so that's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're on the side where you're you're getting over it rather than you coming down with it. Oh yeah, I caught it the day the fever hit. Got on the Tamiflu immediately and isolated myself and worked from home. That's good. Were, were there any fears of coronavirus? Not yet. Not until I get back from Japan, although I'm no. really sad <laughs> that Tennessee's already been hit because I wanted to be patient zero. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, we could do an outbreak, uh, you know, scenario there with you as the as the patient zero. I was so ready for it. Although I probably caught this flu while I was out singing karaoke because I sang a lot of karaoke this past week, and I guarantee you somebody left it just crawling on that microphone. <laughs> that's that's probably true, actually. Yeah, I can see that. So, all right. Well, I am glad to hear that you're feeling better. Thank you. How are you doing? I am doing all right. I've just uh, gotten through a training class at work over this past week where I had to get up two hours earlier than I normally do Ugh. to get to this training. And to add insult to injury, it was like one of those things where it's like it's this new software and we're going to use certain aspects of it, but not other aspects of it. And so the training prob probably could have been about half as long as it actually was if we just learned the parts 
that we're actually going to use, but it was one of those things where it was just like, here's the same training we give to everybody. And so it was just kind of like, oh, Aww. yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you made I did it not though. appreciate getting up. Yeah, I made it. But yeah, I didn't appreciate getting up early. I, that's that's the one thing. I am not a morning person at all. Neither am I. I hate mornings. Okay, yeah, that's, some people are chipper in the morning, and I, I actually work with a lot of people that, like, get to work two hours early so they can leave earlier, and so for them, this was fine, but, you know, it was, I, I I don't understand that. Like, if the sun isn't up, I do not want to be up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm solar-powered or something, I don't know, but, anyway... So yeah, now let's uh, let's talk about our episodes for this week. There is one thing that I forgot to mention last time when I was just talking about the basic background of the show, and that was that I'm not sure if you were aware of this. Like in the beginning, Doctor Who was meant to be like an educational show. Okay. Yeah. So that's why they sort of decided on this format of like we'll go back in time, like, you know, and then we'll do, like, a science fiction one, and then we'll go back in time again, and then we'll do it. So it was kind of like, we'll teach kids a little bit about history, or we'll teach them a little bit about science, or, you know, and we'll kind of alternate between that. But, like, a British educational show doesn't seem at all like what we think of an educational show, because it's like, yeah, so we showed kids how to make a fire, like, kind of, sort of. That was not knowing <laughs> So that's our educational. Fire. That was crap. <laughs> So that satisfies the educational requirement. That's all we needed to do for this oh one. Moving on. <laughs> but that but the reason I'm mentioning that though is it's cuz it's sort of like it's to help understand like why like the the series is kind of cuz you'll you'll start noticing that there's a trend of we're going to going to alternate like going back in time or you know to to an alien world or to the future or whatever. Okay. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention. So for those listening to the podcast, I should have mentioned this last time. BritBox is how I believe Juliet is watching the series. Is that right, Juliet? That's right. Okay, so that is a way, so if you uh, only have, like, a few of the DVDs or don't have any of the DVDs or whatever, and I know a lot of them are in print now, that is a way that you can watch the classic seasons. They have all 26 of the classic era seasons on BritBox. And I also discovered just by sort of goofing around that a lot of the DVD extras are actually available online. Nice. <laughs> you know, just people upload them to YouTube or Daily Motion or one of those. We actually found, I found the one that was for this story, the sort of the making of, called Doctor Who Origins, was on Daily Motion. So I don't know if that's just in the U.S. or if that's something you can access in other places too. So yeah, if you ever want to watch like supplemental material or whatever, I'll try and mention in the podcast where you can watch the DVD extras, I'll do like a little Google search to see if they're available somewhere. I mean, there's gotta be more people like me that just buy, that still buy physical DVDs for the extras. Yeah, that's, that's what I do. I mean, I am a huge physical media person and I get annoyed when I buy a DVD or a Blu-ray and it doesn't have anything on it. Exactly. Or just has something like, Oh, we have like the original trailer or whatever for it. And it's like that, that's not good enough. <laughs> Like, give me commentary, give deleted scenes, give me a That's gag reel, especially. <laughs> well, the one that annoyed me the most, and I'm sorry I'm digressing here, but the one that annoyed me the most just recently was that, you know, I had Crawl on DVD. I'd had Crawl on DVD for years, but then I was going to get it on Blu-ray. So I got it on Blu-ray. You know, the DVD has commentary. It has, like, making of documentary and stuff like that. Yeah. The Blu-ray has nothing. What? 
Why? I'm like, you had all that material already available. All you had to do was port it from the DVD to the blue. You didn't have to do anything new. I mean, it would have been nice if they did something new, but it's like you could just have taken all the material you already had. And no, the Blu-ray has nothing. Wow. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. Somebody was being really cheap there. Mm -hmm. But. <laughs> all right, so with episode two, which was called uh, The Cave of Skulls, because in this point where we have individual episode titles. Mm -hmm. So we start off where the first one left off with the TARDIS on this sort of barren landscape with the uh, shadow, you know, creeping up towards it. And, uh, you know, we get a quick shot of what looks like a caveman staring at TARDIS. That is exactly what I have in my nose. It says, so we pick up exactly where we left off. Not a monster. It looks more like a caveman. I put that in quotation marks. Okay, there you go. Well, <laughs> and here's the thing. You know, like, everybody always says, like, this is, you know, this is like Earth. They go back in time to prehistoric Earth and whatever. There is nothing in this episode that, like, really indicates other than the fact that it's just your assumption that it's uh, cavemen on Earth. It could be any planet where, you know, the aliens look humanoid. And it's just like the past. I actually have a note on that too. I'm like, are we on a different planet? Are we on Earth many ages ago? And then at some point I wrote, ah, so we're on Earth. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the assumption that everyone makes. And so, I mean, I think it's fair. And it's certainly the intention of the writer, because like I said, at one point he was calling it 100,000 BC. But there's nothing, uh, there's no dialogue that like confirms it really. Because even, I mean, they see, like, one animal or something, but we never even get told what it is. Right. Because <laughs> so, it's off screen. But, yeah, so we have this setup. You know, I've, I've sort of, just for this part, just to sort of explain the setup, I'm going to go out of chronological order. We, we've got this tribe that are apparently called the Tribe of Gum, although that also isn't ever said. And we've got basically five main characters. We've got Zaw and Cal as these two men sort of vying for control of the tribe. Cal's an outsider whose own tribe has died off, and he's come over to this tribe. Zaw is the son of the guy who used to lead the tribe because that guy knew how to make fire, but he never showed Zaw before he died. So Zaw is, you know, trying to hold on to being in command, but everyone's kind of like, well, if you can't make fire, what good are you? And there's her, which is the... Uh, sort of like love interest that both Zaw and Cal are sort of fighting over her, but her father, Horg, won't like let her go to anyone unless they're the definitive leader. And then you have the old woman who's, you know, the older generation, like, ooh, fire bad, you know, it's scary, bad things happen when people have fire. I, and I want to, just, just out of curiosity, so much of my memory of this show, even though I did watch it before I read any other books or whatever, is tied up with the books and things because I was reading them also mm -hmm. as a kid. Did the old woman, did you get the impression that she was supposed to be Zaw's mother? No. No, I just thought she was like old wise woman who was also very cynical and hated fire. Yeah. The novelization, which wasn't written by the guy who wrote the story, has her as Zaw's mother. Oh. And it's never supported by the dialogue in the show. Other than that, at one point, Zaw, like, seems to, like, like, didn't you ever see my father make fire? You Like, why would he assume she saw it unless she was someone very close to his father? Okay. That's the only line that I could even say, like, hints at that. But, yeah, otherwise, there's no indication of that. I do want to say that, man... Zah, when he gets upset, when he can't make fire, I am totally doing that the next time I can't do... I'm, I'm upset. I was like, grab a pile of sticks, hold them up to my face, and scream at them. That was the best. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Why won't the fire go from his hands into the wood? 
Because that's what he's doing. He's just like squeezing like the twigs and everything and being like, because he doesn't have any clue. He just knows that, you know, somehow you need wood to make fire and that's all he's got. So, (laughs) but yeah, that's sort of our opening scene after the very beginning with the shadow and just, you know, Cal from my description before was the guy that we see who's looking at the TARDIS. Oh, and, and, and I guess that's the other thing I wanted to ask. Sorry, I'm looking at my notes. So originally, they weren't going to have the cavemen talk because it was historic. They felt it like for this, like, you know, time period, like that probably wasn't accurate. I think that that would have made things really difficult <laughs> if they were just oh, like grunting and stuff. <laughs> wow. What do you think? Wow. <laughs> Because, you know, a lot of people are down on this story just because of the way, like, well, it seems really goofy that you've got these cavemen, but then they'll suddenly launch into a soliloquy or whatever. And it's like, but at the same time, if you just had them grunting, I'm not sure that that's really any better because, you know, that would make things really awkward and hard to convey the story. I actually wondered a little bit about that, but part of me thought maybe the TARDIS does something to you to where it's like a universal translator just for a temporary amount of time. Mm Mm-hmm. I was like, I'll just explain it that way. Yeah, I mean, the, the show never explained it until the 70s. But yeah, that's basically the explanation that eventually comes that the TARDIS, you know, like sort of telepathically instills you with the local language. Nice. So maybe they really were grunting. We just didn't know that. That's true. Maybe. So uh, then the TARDIS crew, they're waking up. Ian's, you know, still doesn't believe that they moved in time and space. The doctor mentions something about a urometer, but it's reading zero, and he knows that can't be right. And, and he basically is saying, like, until he takes some samples, he's got no clue where they are. And so this is kind of setting up the fact that the TARDIS is broken. Yes, I have notes on that, too. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Because um, I don't know if you watched Sliders when you were younger. No, but I'm familiar with it. Okay, yeah. So, like, you know, a lot of this is like that. Uh, You know, Doctor Who in the early days especially is like that, where it's like every episode we have no idea we're doing. You know, so it's always some new scenario or new thing. And that, you know, because nowadays, yeah, the Doctor sometimes travels randomly or whatever. But if he ever really wants to get somewhere, he can get there. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas, yeah, in this time period, it's really like, no, we are totally lost. You know, we got no clue what situation we're going to wind up in. Yeah, I found Ian's skepticism a little hard to take. I loved his description of time. It was so utterly boring. He's like, it just happens, and then it's finished. <laughs> right. It's like, wow, Ian, I, even I know that's not how it goes. <laughs> right. And the doctor's just kind of laughing, like, oh, is that what you think? Okay. You also, know? <laughs> in, right before that whole exchange, they call him by the... I, I assume Susan gave a fake last name when she enrolled in school. Mm. So that's what they call him, Dr. So-and-so. And, and he's like, Dr. Who? And I'm like, yeah, of the first instance. <laughs> That's right. We got to get the title in there somehow. I was very excited about that. But yeah, um, they, so I, uh, do I want to wait until we talk about them opening the door? Because I walked out, they walked out into this planet. They don't know where they're at. And I'm like, poor Ian and Barbara, their bodies are not used to a world with that kind of atmosphere where there are no pollutants, where there are strange right. bits of pollen. I am surprised they did not just start vomiting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get the, you know, the doctor takes, like, some readings or whatever from the console, like, oh, gravity is fine, air is fine, whatever, and then they, like, just walk, you know, or they they looked at the, the scanner also to see what was outside. Yeah, no, it's, realistically, 
should be a lot rougher than that. But it was really cool to hear Susan talk about how, both all of them talk about how it was stuck. And I remember that mm-hmm. from the newer series, them mentioning the TARDIS wasn't always supposed to be a police box. It was supposed to change. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know what happened between London and now that got it stuck. So I'm kind of very curious about that. Yeah, there's an implication in that first episode because the doctor says something about how he got some parts that he's like sort of like jury rigged for the ship when he walks in. But, you know, that the TARDIS was already broken in some way and was trying he was trying to fix it. But then when Ian and Barbara come in, he sort of leaves before he fixes the repairs. And did I hear Susan Wright saying that sometimes it would become like a sofa? How do you open the door to a sofa? (laughs) I guess you push one of the cushions out. Oh my gosh, she's like, it could become a shoe or something. I'm like, no, no, it can't, honey. What are you going to do, just like magically shrink into it? I mean, you could, for all I know, but that's just really weird. See, I like that scene more for, like, the part that always impresses me and how, like, they make it look seamless. You know, obviously nowadays with CG, it's easy. You can open the TARDIS door and you can stare, you know, into this police box and you see the, you know, console room, you know, right inside. But there's a long period in the show later mm. when they decide that it's just too much work. So there's always like this sort of like undefined darkness when the TARDIS doors open as sort of like a transition between that and the interior. And in these early ones, they're just like, nah, we'll just make it work. So, they, you know, they pick their camera angles and everything so you can see so that they, you know, they got it sort of set up so that you can see inside the TARDIS from the outside. And you can see the outside of the landscape from inside the TARDIS. And I really like that. I, I like the scene. Yeah, it did look cool. But yeah, yeah, the chameleon. So, so yeah, originally, like when the show was thought up, they were going to have it be that way, that the TARDIS would just change to fit in with whatever environment. And they decided that that was like an expense that they didn't need. You know, like, hey, this way we could just keep one prop, <laughs> you know, and just use it every time. Little did they know how iconic it would become. Right. And so then that became like sort of like a beloved part of the show. Yeah. Patting themselves on the back years later. <laughs> right. Genius. Genius. Yeah, we got a lot of, they are all clutching their coat tightly as they walk out, sort of, you know, uh, implying, you know, there's some great cold coming. You know, a lot of them, a lot of people think that that means it's like going to be the Ice Age or whatever, but, you know, they even talk in the tribe about how like when the last great cold came, a bunch of people died or whatever. Mm-hmm. They can't be talking about an Ice Age. <laughs> I they just don't figured it was winter. That yeah, that's what I think too. It's supposed to be winter. I do like how the doctor just wanders yeah. off. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta get some samples. I'll just go over here. It's fine. Oh, and one big note. Is he smoking prehistoric weed? (laughs) He just puts a random plant in his pipe and starts smoking it. He's got that giant pipe. He does. He doesn't even, like, run any tests on it. He's like, I figure out what it is by smoking it. Yeah. Apparently, though, like, Cal jumping him puts him off smoking for good because that is the only time you'll ever see the doctor with a pipe. Okay, so that's what that's what you do to kick the habit. That's <laughs> get jumped by a caveman. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. My note for that was how has the doctor gotten by for so long on his own? <laughs> <laughs> he does seem very helpless. Because as soon as he has like some people to help him, and suddenly that's when he gets like jumped and like dragged off somewhere. <laughs> Actually, I put in there. Oh crap! That's what you get for smoking, doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, fair enough. But man, that Susan got really hysterical. Like, I felt like a bit overly hysterical. I mean, if this is how her grandfather always is, I imagine he wanders off constantly. <laughs> and does she get this hysterical every time she can't find him? So you, you're cluing, cluing in on one of the things that's a um, criticism of Susan a lot. 
I'm not as sure it's as bad as people say it is, and I'm gonna. And obviously, you don't have context of later stories. My thinking on Susan is this, because you'll also see other stories where like everybody else is panicking and she isn't. It really seems like they were trying to go for uh, Susan comes from like a sophisticated, you know, other world. Whenever she's in primitive times, she freaks out like really badly. But like when they're surrounded by technology, she's calm even when the situation is dangerous or at least calmer, you know. So, um, yeah, it's. I'm not sure that was intentional or not, but it seems to work when you apply that lens to it. And so I kind of I kind of buy that because if you're used to, you know, I mean, seeing what Gallifrey is like in, you know, later stories that obviously hadn't been thought of yet and how, you know, it's kind of enclosed and protected from the environment and everything. And, you know, nobody's really like worried about, you know, the wilderness or anything. I could totally get sort of freaking out thinking you're going to be stuck out in the woods, you know, for the rest of your life. Okay. I'll wait and see, because right now I find her very annoying with that hysterical. I, I, you know, I'm just trying to make the case for Susan, because I actually kind of like her, but, you know. I mean, I will point out, it did take me a full season to actually get to like Rose. Okay, yeah, fair enough. We get a scene where Horg is telling Zaw that, you know, Cal, Cal told him, oh, Cal knows how to make fire, he's seen people do it all the time, and Zaw's kind of like, pfft. If he's seen it done, then why did his tribe all die out the last time it got cold? You know? Right? I remember watching that scene and I'm sitting there going, I don't know who of these guys I actually root for at this moment because yeah. they're all kind of jerks. Mm-hmm. So we, we find out at this point that like Zaw sort of feels like he should have killed Cal when Cal first came and he's really regretting the fact that he let him join the tribe. And, and I think this is sort of the beginning of the sort of hint that, like, of these people, like, Zod, probably, like, the most progressive and the most forward-thinking, as bad as it is, you know, like... Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, they're at least trying to show that there's, like, some sort of a, you know, a, a progression here of society, that we're at the cusp of, like, maybe something new developing. So, yeah, this is the point where Cal brings the doctor to the cave, <laughs> and it turns out it's an election year. Who knew? <laughs> so very appropriate. I mean, maybe this is how right. we can decide our current leader at this point. <laughs> right, exactly. Because, you know, when you watch Cal and Zaw arguing about, you know, who's who's going to let you die and who's the one that's going to save you, I'm like, man, this is just like a political debate. I was thinking that, too. <laughs> I also like, though, that when the doctor wakes up, you know, like in most shows, like somebody wakes up in an unfamiliar situation, it's like, oh man, what's going on? I have no clue, you know, and there's a lot of awkwardness or whatever. The doctor like immediately sizes it up and he's like, hey guys, I'll make you fire. <laughs> you know, like. Oh yeah, no, he knows how to w- wiggle his way out of this one if he can. Right, exactly. Like, you guys want fire? I got tons of fire. But yeah, then he finds out that he dropped his matches when uh, Cal took him and then it's kind of like, uh, maybe not. Right. <laughs> and then the best part is suddenly, like, as they're deciding that, okay, well, Cal's obviously a liar, we're gonna kill this guy, suddenly, you know, Susan, Ian, and Barbara just, like, run in and just, like, jump the oh, caveman. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Ian, you jump into that fray, you save the doctor, even though you don't even like him. Right. Well, you know, my thing is, you know, it, uh, you know, we didn't see them, you know, and how they came up to the cave and everything, but it really seems like, okay, you're outnumbered. Did you try assess the situation at all? 
<laughs> oh, you know they did. Right. It's just like, yeah, we're totally going to overpower this tribe of people who, you know, have to, like, fight and eke out an existence every day of their lives. So they're probably pretty strong. You know, we're just going to overpower and get Doctor out. Not a problem. Oh, come on. They're not thinking right. straight. Ian and Barbara are still not convinced that this is all right. real at this point. <laughs> What did we have at that party last night? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, of course the tribe overpowers them, and Zoss says they're going to put them in the Cave of Skulls, and then that they're going to sacrifice them when Orb, their name for the sun, you know, is in the sky again. So they get one night basically to live. And... Oh, yeah, there's a really creepy bit where, like, Cal sees Barbara, and, of course, she's cleaner than any woman he's ever seen. Mm. And he's just, like, sort of, like, reaching out, like, and just sort of, like, touching her hair in this really, like, creepy way. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I-, I think one of the things that this one does really well is trying to, like, make it look gritty. You know, like, really sort of grimy, dirty, nasty, you know, like, to actually sort of sell the fear of... You know, it's not like, you know, the show has morphed over time to where now it's just like, we go through time and space to have like rollicking fun adventures. You know, at this period, it's kind of like, we travel through time and space and we can be in some really horrible situations. And so I think that they're selling that pretty well there, just with the, you know, everything that's going on. Yeah, I could see. Although I do want to point out that these cave people tied their hands in front of them <laughs> and you mean to tell me that not a single one of them could undo one of those knots yeah yeah oh my gosh <laughs> well yeah yeah they're trying to cut them off with like rocks and, and bones and stuff which their their wrists should be really bloody at this point i think yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the end of the second episode, wasn't it? Yeah, because, yeah, it ends with them in the Cave of Skulls and noticing that all the skulls have been split open. Yeah, I was like, did you expect them to have gunshot wounds? <laughs> this is all from blood force trauma. What else did you expect, really? Well, they didn't die of natural causes. <laughs> I guess. Well, a Cave of Skulls, I kind of wouldn't expect <laughs> there to be a bunch of people and they're just dead from natural right. things. So yeah, so that's a, that's another question I had for you, because I know the new series has a lot of two-parters, or, or even sometimes three-parters, but in the original series, they're all cliffhangers. Like, every episode leads into the next one, so how do you like that as sort of like a device or a format, or do you think that it kind of, like, when you're binging it like you are, like, it just kind of gets tedious? Oh no, it's fine for me. I, I cut my teeth on stuff like that. DS9 was beautiful at stuff like that. Yeah. I, I'm fine. Okay, sure. There. So yeah, now we're on to episode three, which is the Forest of Fear. Uh. Such a name. <laughs> I know. Honestly, I felt like this one should have been the one called the Cave of Skulls. Right. Because we spend a lot more time in the Cave of Skulls than this one. So the old woman gets up. Out of the most uncomfortable sleeping pile ever. <laughs> yeah, the whole tribe is just like right on top of each other. It looks like they had a massive orgy in the telescope. <laughs> Which, for all we know, they did. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be, like, it's cold, so they're huddling for warmth, but, yeah. Oh, okay, my mind went completely <laughs> elsewhere on that, then. <laughs> and, yeah, that's when we get the whole thing of everybody trying to cut through the everything. But, you know, like, as, as rough as the Doctor's been, as, as difficult as he's been, we, we're still getting hints of him being a better guy than that. Because, like, he tries to help Barbara. You know, she, she's panicking. He calls her a companion. Right. 
And he's trying to get her mind off of it by saying, like, try to retrace your steps to the cave in your mind. Because obviously he didn't see it because he was unconscious when he was brought in. Right. And so that way when we get out of here, you know, we, we know how to go. And she's like, you're trying to help me. And he's like, yeah. Fear makes companions of all of us. Mm-hmm. One of those iconic lines. Let's see. Oh, <laughs> I just noticed I did have one other note for the last episode. Cave Skulls sounds like a 60s mystery novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Hardy Boys in the Cave of Skulls. Oh gosh, it's the perfect title. Yeah. Put <laughs> up by Nancy Drew in the Forest of Fear. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so the old woman, she there's supposedly a back way to this cave that apparently nobody except her knew about. And it's kind of like one of those things where... How has no one ever that's been in the Cave of Skulls noticed that there aren't just, like, a couple bushes, you know, <laughs> like, covering the secret, like, exit? I know. I know. It hurts. <laughs> right. But, yeah, she comes in. Of course, they're worried that she's going to kill them. But, really, she's just there to basically be like, run away. As long as you don't, you know, make fire, I'm happy. And so she cuts their the ropes tying them and, and lets them go. And at this point, old woman's the only one I'm rooting for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. While this has been going on, uh, her notice the old woman get up and leave. So she wakes up, saw they're going to the big rock that covers the cave of skulls. You know, they have to push out of the way, you know, because that's the only entrance they know about. And so they hear the woman talking with the TARDIS crew in there. And so they don't know how she got in there, but they push the rock out of the way. And it's just... What? Have, did you see his facial expression when he was trying to push that rock out of the way? <laughs> yeah. That was some effort. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think the acting is really good because, you know, all, it was just a big thing of styrofoam almost, you know, certainly. I got to give him credit. He was selling it. Yeah, he, he did that heavy acting. <laughs> 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 I think, you know, for as, as difficult as this must be to do, especially without, like, just, like, laughing to death, for an actor, I think he does a really good job of selling it, the guy who plays off. But yeah, yeah, he's, he pushes the, the boulder out of the way, and just as uh, everybody is getting out of the cave, and the old woman's trying to get out, but she, you know, she's old, she can't get out quickly enough, and so he talks to her, and she says that, you know, she let them go, and so he throws her on the ground, and he and her run out to, you know, even though they're worried because it's nighttime, and it's dark, and there's animals out there, they're going after them because they don't want them to get away, because Zah knows that. Even though he doesn't want anyone to believe Cal, he's pretty certain that these people could probably make fire if Cal was saying that. So he wants that for himself. So the doctor, they're running, and he is way out of shape. I don't yes. know what's going on. Maybe it was all that smoking of prehistoric <laughs> and alien weed, but he is just not... And he mentions, he's like, I'm not so young. I want to know how old he really is, because it really occurs to me that this is the first doctor. So right. he hasn't regenerated yet. How old can each iteration live? I don't know. Well, so the new series throws a wrench into this because up until the new series, every time the doctor gives an age, it's higher than the time before it. And so by the time of the end of the show, the doctor says that he's 900, the, the end of the original series, the doctor says he's 953. Well, the 10th doctor says in episode that he's 900. Or no, I'm sorry, Eccleston's doctor says that he's 900. Maybe he was rounding down? Maybe he was rounding down, I don't know. But the second doctor, which is the first time we get an age, says that he's 450. 
So, you know, that's why fans have inserted, like, so many, like, missing, like, stories. And there's there's a whole period where the Doctor didn't have companions, so there could have been, like, a hundred years in here where he's traveling with other people or whatever that we never saw on TV and things like that. So, potentially, he's about 450. Okay. If you want to say that every time the Doctor gives his age, he's giving it in human years, which is another argument people have. Who knows what time scale he's using, you know. But since he's talking to humans when he says it, I'm usually like, I would think he would be converting to human years if he's talking to a human. Mm-hmm. So we got them running through the woods. Yeah, the doctor is having trouble. He and Ian are butting heads because, you know, Ian's trying to be the alpha male and the doctor's just like, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and then the women are just freaking out. Yes. Which, all right, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a pass here. They're at night in a prehistoric jungle. You know, I mean, it's it's a pretty scary situation. I know, but they see a dead animal that looks like a boar, and they lose it. Yeah. I'm like, have you never seen Roadkill? I mean, Barbara must have. I don't know about Susan. <laughs> who knows what Susan's seen? <laughs> yeah, who knows what Susan's seen? I don't know. I mean, Barbara might have lived in the city her whole life. It's true. But still. We know she's living in London. We don't know what her background is. You can't tell me nobody's ever hit a cat or a dog with one of those cars. <laughs> That's true. But, I mean, some people have described what Barbara does here as a nervous breakdown. I could see it. Yeah, I mean, again, I think I think it's stress more than the fact that I just... Like, if she saw a dead animal just, you know, in, in the proper context of being, you know, in London or, or even in the countryside, it's probably... She probably wouldn't freak out like this. But because she's in this, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I was just about to be sacrificed by cave people. <laughs> You know, the stress is going to be building up here. But she does pull it together really quickly when she hears someone else in trouble. Yes. Like, she's like, I'm gone. I'm going to go help them because it gives her something to focus on. Right. Because Zah and her hear her screaming and then they're running over to they are. But that's when Zah gets attacked by whatever animal killed that boar. Or that's, I mean, that's what we're led to believe anyway. That must be whatever killed the boar. Mm Mm-hmm and fights it off but he's super injured and you know this is one of those cases where like my dad always says like you know the good thing about older like tv and movies is they didn't try to show everything and i agree having seen stories that happen later on when they try to show things that they didn't have the budget for i am really glad zaw's fight happens off camera (laughs) (laughs) because we did not need to see some plush animal like fighting (laughs) it couldn't have been any worse than that praying mantis in the first season of Buffy. <laughs> well, that's the problem. Like, nowadays, like, people try to show everything regardless of whether they can make it or not. They need to learn from Silence of the Lambs. Well, yeah, I mean, you get a lot of horror because, like, your imagination can make things worse mm-hmm. than whatever they can show on screen. So if you can't show it well, you know, then don't. And just let people's imagination, like, go, you know, wherever that goes. But yeah, so Zav looks like he's like cut up every, like he's got blood all over him. He's got these scratches and everything. It was a bad fight. Yeah. Also, when Barbara took off and Ian goes chasing after her, did he swear? Because I'm almost positive I heard him swear as he runs after her. I don't remember exactly what he says, but I don't remember him swearing. Okay, because it really sounded like he was muttering <laughs> under his, a certain word under his breath. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That's the one thing I do know is, like, even though they tried to record everything in one long string without ever cutting, is if someone swore, they would stop recording and cut. Ah, damn. Because that was, this is the funny thing, because, you know, so I watch the DVD extras. I'm, I'm like, crazy about this. I, I watch all of them. 
And, you know, so the first time I saw one where they're interviewing people that, you know, had been on the show as guest actors or whatever, the guy's like, yeah, you know, I was a young actor and William Hartnell, he was so great. He, you know, put his arms around me and he's like, look, I know you're a young actor and I know that it's really important that you, you know, uh, make a big splash if this is your first TV or one of your first ones. So if we ever are doing something where you don't think like you got like your best performance in, just say the F word. And then they'll be forced to cut, you know. And so, you know, I'm watching this and going like, oh, okay, that's that's like a funny little story. But then as the interviews go, like other story, like other stories and watching the interviews, like that story gets told again and again and again by different actors. It seems like that was just his thing that he just told everybody is just like, swear, <laughs> force them to make a cut if you feel like you could have done it better. <laughs> so I just oh, think man. that's the funniest thing is like he's he's just going around telling all the young actors is this is what you do you just start swearing. It does make me wonder how many of those you know del- scenes where he's just grinning like a madman as somebody swears <laughs> and they have to start all over again. Oh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, just just a little insight into his character. <laughs> wow. But uh, yeah, so yeah, Zaw's all messed up. Barbara comes out to help him, and her is, of course, surprised, like, why are you guys, you know, she's leery of them, doesn't know, she thinks they're going to kill him or something, but Barbara's like, look, help me find some water so we can, you know, treat his wounds, and so she helps them out, and so they're doing all this, the doctor's like, what, what are you guys doing? Now's the time to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and even Ian's not, like, he's following Barbara because he wants to protect Barbara because OTP, but... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like even he's like, you know, like your apartment must be like littered with like stray cats and dogs. And like Barbara's like, this is a human, you know, like don't like call him an animal. Oh, no. Then he gets really condescending. He's like, she doesn't understand kindness or friendship. I'm like, whoa, Ian, how do you even know this? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I was really glad that Barbara sort of had the the moral outrage here because it's like, this is not the same as somebody who just collects stray pets, you know, right. <laughs> at all. But yeah, and so it gets to a point, you know, they're kind of discussing to do about, you know, the situation, you know, they're, they're, they're washing the blood off and everything. And so Ian decides like, Hey, you know, we got to make a stretcher. And so they're, they're, you know, going to do that. And the doctor who's unhappy with this and just wants him to leave, he grabs a rock and he's walking over and he's like about to, you get the implication. I mean, you, you don't, he, he says that what he wanted to do was he grabbed the rock so that they could draw a map showing them how to get back to the TARDIS. I didn't believe that at all. But yeah, it's it's really played like, oh, you caught me, because Ian grabs his arm as he grabs the you know rock and looks like he might be about to bash Zaw's head in. <laughs> and that would fix all their problems really quickly. <laughs> right. And he's just like, oh, I, I, I was going to have him draw a map. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, like, Coming to Doctor Who from, you know, now, Juliet, how did that sort of strike you? Really, it, it, it emphasized to me how much of the apparent time war changed the Doctor. Mm. Because the time war happened before before Nine. Mm-hmm. Nine, I think, was what, the first iteration after the war, right? Yes. Okay. And Nine was a total coward. He admitted it. He uh, That's what he was. He, and he did not want to kill anybody. But... This doctor is will. I think he was totally ready to kill Za just to be able to get them out of there. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he wanted to protect his own hide or Susan's. I don't think he really cares about Ian or Barbara at this point. And I'm honestly not sure how much he cares about Susan. <laughs> he is 
more ruthless than uh, I was expecting a kindly old man doctor to be. Yeah, I will say this. One of the biggest character arcs is with the doctor's character in this first season. So, okay. you know, we'll, we'll get developments here with, with him. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's it's, he's a very different character than what you expect, even in a few years' time. You know, it would be unthinkable that he would just bash someone's head in with a rock just because he was like, let's get out of here. (laughs) So it's always a hard scene for people who are familiar with Doctor Who from later. But also, when you think about it, this was conceived as an ensemble cast at this point. So we're trying to sort of differentiate the characters, you know, like Barbara's the very compassionate one. Ian's pragmatic but he's not that far removed from things that he would stop trying to help somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, but the doctor is completely, like, self-centered at this point. Oh, definitely. He, there is no de- denying that at all. Now, Susan is the one place that I'll tell you, like you said, you're not sure yet about Susan. Susan is the one person that he cares about and will, you know, protect. But yeah, at this point, other than Susan, he doesn't care about anyone else. So the doctor at this point has never actually traveled with human companions before? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, and um, the other thing that happens here is that Ian tells her the friend, but she ends up thinking that's his name. Right. <laughs> it's because that comes back later, where it's like, hey, the guy that's called Friend. <laughs> Cal goes into the Cave of Skulls. He finds the old woman there. He thinks at first that Zaw uh, let the strangers go, but then he finds out when she's like, no, no, they're not going to make fire. And he's like, oh, you did it. And so then he kills her. And then he starts trying to turn the tribe against everybody by saying, Zah killed old woman. And I, they're like, how dare, the, how dare he? And I'm like, you didn't even like her. Right. <laughs> None of them liked old woman. I know, everybody else is like, fire, fire, fire. We want fire. It's almost like Beavis, right? Fire, fire. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And she's the one, you know, old curmudgeon going like, oh, fire, bat, you know, like it was always better in the days before we had fire. <laughs> <laughs> So Cal's, you know, saying, like, I'm the leader now because Zaw's unfit to be a leader. So they're running out of the cave. And somehow, even though they left like five minutes ago, apparently the TARDIS people, they just took like the really long way around to get to the TARDIS. (laughs) Because even though like Cal like leaves like way later, they're there at the TARDIS already before they get there. And so they get captured as they run into the clearing. So that's our cliffhanger for uh, episode three. And then, okay, so episode four is definitely my favorite of these, of these three at least. We have two scenes that I really like. And so the first one is, you know, they're bringing everybody back into the cave and Cal's saying, hey, Zaw killed the old woman. Her's like, no, that's not true. And Cal just like grabs Zaw's knife and says like, hey, as a knife, he killed her. And the doctor, this is so good, because this is like Law and Order 100,000 BC. You know, the doctor's like, there's no blood on that knife. (laughs) And then Cal's like, oh, well, it's a bad knife. It doesn't show that, you know, it killed the woman. And the doctor's like, it's the great knife. It's the most wonderful knife ever. And Cal's like, "Uh, my knife's way better. And he pulls it out. And of course, it's covered in blood. And so the doctor's like, well, look, there's blood on this knife. What do you think happened? All he would have had to do at that point is put on some sunglasses and have some who blaring in the background. (laughs) It would have been perfect. Yeah, I just love that whole scene because whenever the doctor gets to have fun like that, it's always really great to watch. I mean, Hartnell was known for two, like in its early days, he was known for comedy. 
And then later he was sort of typecast as this sort of like angry sergeant kind of thing, and that's why he wanted to do Doctor Who. But but his roots were in comedy. Okay. And and you sort of get that here, where like he's just having a ball, just like letting this guy just sort of like fall into his own trap of logic. See, that did remind me of the later Doctors that I'm familiar with. Mm. And so, of course, once Cal realizes that, you know, kind of gives up, he's like, sure, I killed her. Oh, yeah, he confesses so quickly, it's not even funny. <laughs> right. And so then, you know, at that point, the doctor also being, you know, was like, you know, and like, help me out with this. And so they start bringing up rocks and saying, like, drive them out and throwing rocks. And so then the whole tribe gets in on it. You know, the whole idea of, you know... Oh, yeah, like, Cal might be really strong and overpower one of us, but, like, if we all just throw rocks at him, he's going to run away. Some serious herd mentality going on there. Right. But it's it, he's trying to, like, teach, like, the whole principle of cooperation, right? Mm-hmm. So they do that, but then, you know, the tribe still grabs them and puts them in the cave of skulls, but this time they don't tie them up. So, hey, Zaz, like, thanks for saving my life, but, you know, so I won't tie you up this time, but here, you can go there, and he puts a, now that he knows about the back way into the cave, he puts a guard there, but I love how the guard stands with his back to the entrance. Right. So it's like, if they try sneaking out, they can just, like, you know, grab you from behind. I mean, I've already gotten the impression these guys aren't the brightest of the bunch. <laughs> right. It's like, maybe you should face towards them. <laughs> but that's okay. When Cal sneaks up later, you know, the guard's facing outward, so he should see Cal, and it's like, he just, like, completely doesn't notice the guy that's only a few feet away. Nope. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in these days, when they did the historical ones, they, they don't have, like, any alien elements or anything that isn't, like, unworld, because they're trying to be historic. So when they go into the past, it doesn't... Because I wrote down that, you know, there's all this talk of Orb, and in any other story, Orb would be, like, an alien or something that was, like, right. being worshipped as a god, but, you know, now, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make this as listic as possible, but just with time travelers in there. I figured it was just easier to ease the audience into this new show by, instead of just dropping us on an alien planet, mm -hmm. let's stay on Earth, let's just go back in time and start there. Yeah, and I mean, that's true. I mean, and, and, and they're going back far enough that it's still, like, a very alien environment, you know, even though it's Earth, it's supposed to be Earth. You know, but it's it's so far removed from, you know, our own society and everything that it still, it feels very alien. Right. So, yeah, and then Zoss says that, you know, because he's talking with everybody and then it, or and he and her are talking and he talks about the fact that he doesn't want to kill the strangers because he thinks they know how to make fire. But if they show him how, he's going to have to kill them just to appease the rest of the tribe, which do think that, you know, they, he needs to sacrifice them. But Zaw does realize that, like, the things that they're teaching him are, like, are wise. And so it's almost like Zaw, you know, again, kind of realizing that there's progress that could be made. He's sort of the progressive figure next to Cal, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, next to Cal. <laughs> he's the progressive figure in this tribe that he wants to learn more from them also because he sort of sees the benefit of, like, you know, the whole idea of, hey, if we work together, we can get stuff done that we can't do separately. And then, yeah, Ian starts working on making the fire. Oh, oh, <laughs> Ian does not know how to make fire. I know how to make fire better than Ian does. I don't even know what... He, wait, he wasn't even getting close to rubbing the sticks together. And okay, that, though, I know was done on purpose because they didn't want to have a fire in the studio. He, trust me, they would not have had a fire the way he was attempting to do it. 
so he was told to like not put the sticks like right against each other and to just like kind of like have it you know apart and just it was pretend. So awful! I'm like you rub <laughs> them together for a half hour, actually together, and I promise you, Ian, you would not have made fire. <laughs> And then suddenly there's fire, and I'm sitting at my computer desk at work going, how did that hangman happen? (laughs) (sighs) So then, like, Zaw comes in, he sees that Ian's trying to make the fire, and, you know, I like this scene, because Zaw asks Ian if he's the leader, and Ian defers to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So we see, again, like, sort of the dynamic is progressing, and, like... Ian knows how, like, petulant the Doctor could be, so he's just kind of, like, being like, nah, he's the leader. But he does point out that everybody knows how to make fire. Right, and so that's not the important thing for them, because... (laughs) I love Susan's line, though, because Susan's like, I hope he doesn't make Grandfather proof that. (laughs) (laughs) Because even though, like, even I, like, I know, like, theoretically how to make fire, but... (laughs) I'm not sure I can do it in practice without, you know, a match (laughs) and a light or a lighter... A huge amount of gasoline. Um, but anyway. <laughs> I went camping one time, and one of the people that we were with, he, like, actually poured gasoline on a live fire to make it bigger. And it was just, like, like really quickly so that it wouldn't run up the can, you know? And it's like, this is really terrifying. <laughs> and so, yeah, they, then they make the fire, you know, Zaw is, of course, in awe. Ooh, fire. At the same time, the, the tribe's people are panicking, though, because it's dawn, and they haven't sacrificed the people yet, and so they're kind of, like, bang for blood, and then Cal overpowers the guard, you know, because the guard apparently can't pay attention to anything. <laughs> <laughs> that poor guard. Then he comes in to fight Zaw, and I wrote, cue Star Trek music. <laughs> You know, the da, 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 from the original series that they would always yes. play. That's it. It's like those Kirk fights, you know? Like a Kirk and Gorn fight. <laughs> yeah. I did note that it was a really weird and oddly brutal fight. Well, two cavemen fighting. So, I mean, again, they were trying to go for as gritty realistic as they could do for a theoretically kids show. And when I say kids show, I'm not meaning like it was like for preschool age. Like when they say kids, like they were aiming at like a 10 to 14 effect, you know, because uh, the guy who, who created the show basically said that the 10 to 14 age group is the most discerning age group <laughs> for all of television. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Because they'll tell you if something sucks. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, so we, you know, Zaw and Cal fight, Zaw eventually wins, and he bashes Cal's head in with a big rock. They were apparently going to originally have a sound effect of, like, uh, you know, hitting a cabbage with a hammer or something, mm-hmm. and the producer was like, no, <laughs> this is for kids, I don't want that. So they vetoed that. So Zaw brings out the fire, and, you know, Ian wants to go with him so that they can just leave right afterwards. But even the doctor's like, no, let him assert his, you know, authority, and then, you know, they'll let us go. But then he doesn't, because Zaw realizes that if the fire ever, you know, goes out, then he doesn't know how to make it, really. And Ian didn't really show him enough. Yeah, this this episode just got really weird. <laughs> so he decided that there he's just going to keep them there so that you know he has his you know his fire makers ready to go he needs it but yeah so then they're like feeding them and everything and of course they're not happy because they they were told they were going to you know be let go but Zaw's like hey we'll just all come together and become one big tribe and they're like no <laughs> no 
really don't want that. Uh, but then Susan and I, because they're like, man, we got to figure out like some way of like scaring them or something. And then Susan suddenly becoming like total goth chick is like, hey, <laughs> skulls why don't we on take skull? Yeah, skulls on fire. <laughs> And I, it's like, okay, wow, that's a that's a good one. I'm not even sure she thought that immediately that it was going to be a great way to escape. She's just like, hey, look, I can set the skull on fire. <laughs> well, the doctor had just said something about if only we can figure out some way to scare them. And then she's wandering over with the skulls and just like sort of like playing around with them. So I think you're supposed to get that she's like just thinking about something. But yeah, you're right. Like there's no like it's not direct. She's not like, hey, let's try this. Because then Ian comes over and he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, let's set it on fire. <laughs> so yeah, they set up four sticks with skulls on them that are on fire. And so when, you know, the, the, her walks in to give them their meal or whatever, she, like, sees that, and because they're superstitious and primitive, it's instantly like, ah! You know, thinking that they've, like, turned into spirits or something. They did remind me of Ewoks right there. Right! <laughs> Tell them that they'll make you angry, and you'll strike <laughs> them down with your magic. <laughs> So yeah, they're, they're, you know, and then the other tribes people come in to see what she's screaming about, and then they're screaming, and so then they sneak out, and then we got some great scenes of them, like, running in place, <laughs> but supposed to make it look like they were, because the problem was they were in such a small, like, studio that they didn't always have the room to, like, have a shot of them running around somewhere, and in this episode, they had to use the TARDIS set again. They, like, lost the space they had in the previous one. Mm-hmm. So they're basically are running in place <laughs> and have like a really close up shot of just this. But then like one of the sticks falls over. And of course, then like the, the you know, Zaz like, they tricked us, you know? And so then they grab, you know, a bunch of torches and are running after them. And mm-hmm. we have the high speed chase. <laughs> But then, yeah, they do the TARDIS uh, just as the, you know, uh, the tribe is coming up. They throw spears at the TARDIS as it dematerializes, and they're away. So I have questions. I'm assuming that eventually we find out. Somebody explains why the TARDIS got stuck in the shape, although I could be wrong. And does the Doctor honestly not know how to operate the TARDIS? Because he certainly doesn't seem to. <laughs> so, yeah, we never get told exactly why. Just that, there's like the they call it the chameleon circuit of the TARDIS. Okay. But that's all we know. So it just got stuck in that one last shape. And yeah, as far as like, you know, the doctor always claims he knows exactly what he's... They they always let it ambiguous whether it's that the TARDIS is broken or that the doctor just doesn't know what he's doing or if it's some combination of the two. Okay. So because they're also trying to leave his background as vague as possible, which is great because as the show progresses, they come up with all kinds of ideas. There's no way that they ever would have come up with in the 60s. And if they had, like, established too many things about his past, mm-hmm. you know, like, right away, that would have been way too hard to, like, then, you know, it would have locked them into certain things that probably best that they didn't get locked into. So it's actually really good that they, like, left things so vague and ambiguous in these in these early ones. I'm okay with it. So, yeah, like, then... Ian was asking, so are you taking us back home? And the doctor's like, um, I can't do that. And Ian's like, come on, we just went through this whole thing together. And the doctor's like, no, I literally can't do that. Like, yeah. I have, not only is it broken, but, and I could plot a journey, but first I have to know where I'm starting from. They didn't have time to establish exactly where they were in time and space. This, he can't do anything. 
So, yeah, then they look at the scanner. It's like an alien jungle outside. Full of radiation. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the best part. So he's like, Susan, check the... Like, we cleaned up, but before we go, Susan, check the radiation. Like, oh, it's fine. You know, because the indicator's way down, you know, low. And so they, they walk off to get cleaned up. And then, like, as soon as they walk off, the dial goes all the way over to the danger area. It starts flashing. <laughs> now, I have to admit, I, like, looked at... I happened to see the name of the next episode. I'm like, Yes! <laughs> oh because i was gonna ask what what do you what are you expecting for the next one but yeah if you saw the next one if, if you saw then you know i couldn't help it because now my mind is just waiting for that familiar familiar voice right but yes it's very early in the show's history that we do get the daleks so yeah i mean we had a lot going on in this one so what did you all right so all our all right what did you think of our regulars and sort of the dynamic in this one and how do you feel about each character i feel like the dynamics between them definitely have improved like if we look at it from the unaired pilot and the one that actually did get televised i felt like this was a i like the growth and it felt much smoother with the televised pilot and these as i've told you susan's kind of grating on my nerves but i look forward to seeing where she's gonna go from here because i'd like rose for an entire season so i'll give susan at least a full like her own arc Sure. I was starting to get annoyed with Barbara until she just focused on helping Za. Once once she came like focused and cool and calm, I was much more okay with her. I do want to see at some point uh, one of our men get hysterical and one of our women having to bring him back. <laughs> Start slapping somebody. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> I Ian, man, Ian's a. Uh, I'm still not sure. I have moments where I think he's okay, and then he says something idiotic like. Oh, <laughs> They don't know about kindness. <laughs> wow, Ian. But yeah. then he goes without even thinking, uh, jumps on the back of a caveman. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't get it. Also, the man needs to learn how to make fire. <laughs> the funny thing to me is this is totally the commentary my wife would have about this. <laughs> like, I've made fires in the woods. That's not how you do it. In fact, she might have even said that. With the, I, I showed this to her so many years ago that I don't remember what she, what she said about it. But I'm, she could very well have brought up, uh, that's not how you make fire. <laughs> <laughs> but man, the doctor, he is so narcissistic, I think, that I want right now. He's very mm. focused on himself. I, and I, I get that he cares for Susan. We haven't, I haven't seen a whole lot of his like intense caring and desire to protect Susan at all costs. I'm glad that he's not going to be smoking random plants on alien planets. I really don't want to see what he'd be smoking on this planet full of radiation. Who only knows? Uh, Dalek weed, you know? <laughs> it's the good stuff. Hey, if it's radioactive, it's probably, like, really awesome. Helps you glow in the dark. Yeah, you glow in the dark. But he, he's, a, he's a different sort of doctor than what I'm used to. Because even I haven't made it all the way through the new series yet. I've, I get stuck on things I don't like and I ha- or that make me sad. And I take a break and then I have to come back. He does remind me a little bit of the few episodes I've seen of Capaldi, actually. I can see uh, a lot of the first doctor in Capaldi. Yeah, a lot of people have made that comment that, yeah, Capaldi is bringing things back to the very beginning. Yeah, one of them that we deal with watching a show that's over 50 years old is that the societal expectations of women were different. I know. Right? So that is one of the problems. But here's where I'm going to... But but So Doctor Who is this really strange thing, though, because our producer is a woman and is a woman that had to make it a men's world and everything. So you get this sort of dichotomy of, you know, the scripts and the direction, you know, because the directors at this point were universally male and the script writers are universally male. 
but you have your producer on top who's a woman. So you get this dichotomy of sometimes like the scripts and things try to push the women into boxes, but Barbara especially, you know, less so Susan, but Barbara especially gets her chances to shine. I'm glad. Yeah, like Barbara gets some episodes, but there are episodes like this one where it's like totally, you know, like, oh, well, we got Yen as the strong protector and, and, you know, Barbara is just like panicking because... You know, I mean, and not to say that that's not even realistic, because certainly if I was in caveman times, I'd probably be panicking, so... <laughs> she honestly, though, she's more open-minded than Ian, at least that's, yes. that's how it seems to me. Yes, she's definitely, because even when, like, Ian's, ba- you know, after they've been through this whole situation, they're inside something that's bigger on the inside than the outside, and the doctor's telling them they've just traveled, I'm like, Barbara's willing to entertain the notion, Ian's still like, Psh, that's not how time works. <laughs> <laughs> I totally know with my science teacher education. <laughs> it's not like he's even like a like a physicist or anything. It's like he's a teacher. <laughs> because it's like, you know, you might understand a lot, but you, even you should know that, you know, teachers aren't teaching like like high schoolers like the cutting edge of science, you know. I mean, <laughs> so. I mean he was just all I could think about was I wonder if they had that in mind when they came up with the whole wibbly wobbly timey wimey <laughs> yeah. thing. Oh. Just like, were you thinking about that original description of how time is? Mm. It's just there, and then it's done. Yeah. Yeah, Susan, uh, yeah, give her a little bit of time. Because she's young as well as being a woman, she definitely gets the short end of the stick of the four of them. That was the exact phrase I was thinking. Well, but here's the thing. Like, my wife really likes Susan because she can identify with the way that, like, a lot of time, even in the show, people are dismissive of Susan, even when she's right. <laughs> You know, so, like, my wife is like, I felt this way as a kid, like, all the time. <laughs> so, you know, it's not it's not necessarily unrealistic, even if it means she doesn't always get, like, the best stuff. But, yeah, Barbara, I adore Barbara, I adore Ian. I, I think that they're fantastic, and we haven't gotten to their best moments yet, either one of them. I definitely like that they're a pair, and they obviously are really tight anyway. But Barbara is definitely the more compassionate of the two, and Ian is definitely the more, you know, assertive of the two, but they definitely both get will get their, their give and take there. And the Doctor, I mean, it's rough in this point, because he doesn't... It, it's great when he's just pointing out to people, like, in a subtle way how dumb they are. <laughs> and he has so much fun doing it. But, yeah, he, he can have his, his difficult moments. But when you're talking about a team... I actually prefer this dynamic to, like, the later show when it's like, here, I'm the doctor and here is my sidekick or sidekicks. Mm-hmm. Because I like that there's give and take for each character rather than one character is definitely, like, the dominant one and everybody else is just there to show them how smart and wonderful they are. Well, you know what that makes me think of is it's one of the reasons that I, I'm probably one of the few people that loves Donna. Um, she's not my favorite companion, but I like her because she doesn't take any crap from the doctor. Right. Yeah, Donna was definitely, for me, a step in the right direction with the new series after having two companions that were just fawning over the time. Because I like when he has someone that can challenge him a little. And that's Donna. Definitely. Like, I like Rose. Martha, I can't stand. I drag my feet through that. (laughs) Oh, but I love him to bits. Yeah. At least Rose had at least a mind of her own, and she didn't even think about actually being in love with the Doctor till you know, regeneration. Right. But Martha, that's only thing on her little doctor brain yep. yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so we talked about the cast what do you think about the story overall 
the story was weird. The story was very weird. <laughs> I actually have in here. This is a really weird arc. Yeah. It was a good it, it was a good introduction for me. Like if this was the first time I'd ever seen Doctor Who, I think that it would have been a good good thing to watch for the first time. It would have told me the strangeness of this world I've been dropped into. Yeah, I'm actually I actually think it's good that this one ended up being moved uh, to the beginning because originally there was going to be this story about them getting shrunk. I think I mentioned that last time. Yeah. And then they decided, like, this isn't, like, the show's going to be about time travel, so why are we doing this for our first story? It's not really representative. So this, he had actually had, Anthony Coburn, the writer, had actually had this as a story that was going to be, like, a four-parter on its own. But then they were like, no, we're going to move this to the front, so you're going to have to add the introduction for the characters and, like, shorten the rest of it to three parts. I think that shortening it to three parts is a good thing, because, like, if you expanded this by a whole episode, <laughs> it could get really tedious. Yeah. But also because I think this storyline is better suited for the beginning. And why I say that is there's not a huge amount of plot going on, so it allows you to work with those character dynamics that we talked about and introduce them more. So even though you've had the first episode where, oh, Susan's the weird kid and we follow her, and whatever, you, you still needed more time to sort of like get the cat, you know, 25 minutes isn't enough. So we have another three episodes where the situation they're in is something that's helping to show like their dynamic when they're, you know, when their backs are against the wall and of showing how the try, like the, the point of the story is the, you know, the doctor and Ian. So, so we have Susan and the doctor in the beginning who are way advanced from Barbara and Ian. Then they come to another time. They're even more advanced than these people. So we got like three levels, right? Mm -hmm. And so you get the mirror of the doctor's attitude towards Ian and Barbara and Ian's attitude towards the cave people. Yeah, yeah. And it's only when they start to realize that teaching the cave people how to cooperate is the way to go that they then realize that the four of them need to cooperate too. Mm -hmm. And so then that's where Ian starts deferring to the doctor and, you know, being like, no, he's the leader and stuff like that as they're starting to get to the you know, point of cooperation. So I think this story is really well suited to being the first one. And if it had come later and had been a four-parter, it probably would have been, you know, a lot more tedious. But I think it works thematically because it is the first one. Agreed. Yeah, it's not, it's definitely not the most intricate plot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's your typical, like, technology, like, new technology, you know, is it good, is it bad? You know, like, in all the things that new technology can do, it's just, we're going back to the beginning when technology was fire. <laughs> you know, yeah. instead of it being some, like, super scientific thing. Um, so not a lot there, but I do, I did love, love the political debate. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved when Law and Order 100,000 BC, the, those two scenes I, I, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with. Done. Yeah. All right. So if, if you were going to rate this one and, and include the, the original episode with it out of 10, what would you give it? I'd probably give it a... Six and a half, seven. They did a really good job for setting up. Okay. For like giving me of the full like my introduction to, and I'm trying to like not bring in my my knowledge of the later seasons. Yeah. I'm cool with it. Again, I grew up on stuff like Dark Dark Shadows, so the filming style doesn't really bother me. Mm -hmm. Other than the few weird, really weird things that just make no sense. <laughs> I'm cool with it. I think it was really good. Okay. Yeah. No, I would actually completely agree. I give this one a seven out of ten. Um, definitely it's room for improvement but i also tend to be more generous with starting stories anyway just because you've got so much work 
to set up everything, mm-hmm. both the characters and the storyline and everything else. So, you know, I, I think they did a good job with that, too. Yeah, the only time I'm not forgiving on starting is is Star Trek, is the first Star Trek movie. Mm-mm, no. <laughs> well, the problem there was that it was originally going to be the pilot for a new series. You know, they were going to do, like, Star Trek New Voyages. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was a one-hour pilot that they then expanded into a two-hour movie. It's so bad. Yeah, you get one hour's worth of plot in two hours of movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Have you seen the director's cut? Of the original Star Trek? No, yeah. I tried not to watch it. It's an odd-numbered movie. <laughs> okay. I, I will say this. The director's cut is way better than the than the theatrical version. All right. If I can find it, I'll give it a try. But I just, it's the even numbers. Sure. No, no. I mean, I, I'm with you. That's my preference. I actually was watching through those movies with my daughter, which is why I watched it again. But I had actually seen the director's cut a few years back. And I just think that, because it's not just, oh, this is just a longer version, which a lot of director's cuts are. He changed a lot of things. He even added in new effects. Nice. Because they didn't have the time originally to complete the effects. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he fixed all the effects and also, like, changed around things. He added new scenes in, but he also took some scenes out, and he rearranged some things, and it comes across as a much... I mean, it's still not, like, my... You know, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, I... It's down on the low end of my Star Trek movie preference, but I find it far more watchable than the theatrical version. I'll give it a shot. It's still not as bad as five, so... Right, right. (laughs) At least we can agree on that. Right, yes. But, yeah, so this has been our Star Trek podcast for the week. (laughs) So, yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that you... Because usually the commentary that I hear from anyone who watches this is, Hey, the first episode, you know, Unearthly Child was pretty interesting, but then two through four was so bad. Oh, my God, it was so bad. So I'm kind of glad that you appreciated it. And, and like I say, I think the best thing someone can do watching these is to consider it like a play. Because mm-hmm. then a lot of the sort of staginess of it doesn't get in the way because you don't expect it to be dynamic like a TV show, right. like a modern TV show. But yeah, so next time, you already know, it's the Daleks. Woo! Which is a seven-parter. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's... <laughs> So they broke their own rule starting out. They're, originally, when they're starting out, they're like, so this is going to be a series of serials. We're only going to do four-parters or six-parters. And they started off, and because of script issues with other stories and them juggling things around, the Daleks became a seven-parter. I can't wait to see if the Daleks look like I'm used to its look, because I'm hoping they didn't really change that much. Because they look pretty bad in the new series with, like, a, a whisk and a, a egg beater. Uh-huh. So it's cool. I can't wait to see this. I won't say anything so that you can <laughs> have the proper level of, of, you know, surprise or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, uh, never mind. I, I keep wanting to say things, but then I'm like, no, I'll just let you experience it. <laughs> that's what I should do. I should just let you experience it. But because it's a seven-parter and I don't ever want to have us just talking about seven episodes, we're going to do it as a four and a three. Okay. So yeah, next time, let's let's just watch the first four And in fact, the funny thing is, so my PBS station, where I watched it as a kid, they would normally edit stories together so that you watched it like a movie. So, because they basically got sold from England both ways. Like, some PBS stations showed them as the 25-minute episodes. Other ones showed, like, basically a movie version. Mm -hmm. But because the Daleks was so long with seven parts, they actually did it as two. So they did the first four as one block that we watched one Saturday, and then the next Saturday it was the other three episodes edited together. So, to me, that's, like, the natural way of watching it because that's what I saw when I was a kid. 
So, yeah, next time, the Daleks. Which, for those of you who care about these, is also known as the Mutants or the Dead Planet. (laughs) (laughs) So, this has been another episode of Time Streams, and this is Nathan. And this is Juliet. And we're we're signing signing out. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License.